Welcome back to the Bell News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a cold and bitter uh, Tuesday morning here in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, winter winter finally came back. I'm no longer riding outdoors. And, uh, thank God for Zwift and exercise bikes and staring at the computer screen and uh, doing all the other things that we have uh, adjusted to do indoors. Um, we have a great podcast coming up. We have so much to get to. Second half of the show, we have her back. It's Lucinda Brand, the recently crowned cyclocross world champion and friend of the podcast she came back jim cotton caught up with her the other day to talk all about her world's winning ride what it meant to her memories she has from the race and uh what she's looking forward to in the road season so psyched to have lucinda brand back on the podcast again friend of the podcast open door policy lucinda brand you can come back whenever you'd like before we get to lucinda though we have to talk about the news stories that are blowing up the cycling world this week, of course, uh, that being the UCI's mercurial decision to ban the Super Tuck? What? And also ban the um, so-called puppy paws position, which is when you're, like, attacking in a breakaway and you put your arms on your handlebar to mimic a time trial bike. Like, the, the, the invisible time trial uh, bars position. UCI has decided that these are going to go away, that they are violation. Ho, ho, ho. And, um... We are going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the fact that racing has returned. That's right. Bike racing returned this past week in France with the Etoile de Bessage race. And our very own James Start was at the race and has some great feedback on what the buzz was down there in France. So without further ado, I have uh, both Andrew Hood and James Start on the line here. James, we'll start with you. You were at the races this past week, home for like two days you know, throw your underpants in the laundry and then get right back out to the races. Tell us what 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 what's up with your travel schedule in this early season and, and you're going to all these events. Yeah, I actually even went out and bought some new skitties, so things are looking up. Um but uh yes, it's uh it's crazy because you know all these races are getting canceled and, and it looks like I'm I'm gonna be doing more races in February than I've ever ever done. I'm doing I'm every week I'm at a race and that's because uh, the center of the world is once again southern France, and and that has not been the case in years. You know, it, it was back in the day when I first got into this sport. You know, the, the season started with pretty much with the, the Grand Prix de l'Ouverture, and then the Etoile de Bessege, and then uh, the Tour Med, and then you know we we worked into it with some uh, the Hauteville race and uh, a few others. And they pretty much, you know, just sort of got eclipsed by all of the other early season races. The season started uh, much a month earlier down under and, and then Argentina and all the Middle Eastern races. And all those races, you know, they had a lot of money, pulled in bring the big name riders. And it was uh, harder and harder for these smaller French races to compete just on the fact that they were good early season races on hilly, varied terrain, you know, and things like that. And not too far from home. Uh, some of the races disappeared, like the Tour Med and things like that. And, uh, but like Tour de Bessege, I haven't been there in 25 years. And, you know, it was a kind of a sleepy little race back then. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, this big world tour race. I mean, you know, Nibble, I mean, just look at the Ineos team that was there. Uh, two Tour de France winners, right? Garen Thomas, uh, Egan Bernal, Michael Kiatowski, you know, Mika Kiatowski. I mean, he's just always amazing. Uh, and then Ghana, you know, a few people, Ghana, who's like one of the biggest up and coming stars in the pack. You know, that was just their team. And, you know, Nibali was there. Uh, Bok Molomo was there. Truck had a, a tremendous team. 
and then, you know, the lotto team who won it, you know, I mean, Tim Wellens, uh, Philippe Gilbert, uh, John Duggenkov. I mean, just the list goes on and on. And, you know, they were really racing. I can tell you that. I mean, and I talked to like Greg Van Avermaet and I talked to Philippe. And I mean, the first thing that came out of their mouths, happy to be racing again. And you saw it because they were at the front hammering away. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, as a viewer, I was pretty happy to be watching racing and watching that level of racing, even if it is at this small French race that, you know, traditionally has not been part of my early season cycling diet. Um, It was a cool race to watch. And it was really cool to see the guys taking it that seriously. Andrew Hood, I mean, when you think back to the last few days of watching that uh, race, I mean, what to me, the performance that's going to stand out is is the Ghana one. What... um, you know, in, in watching bike racing and following bike racing, A, how did it feel? And like, what was your takeaway from uh, the Etoile de Bessage race? Yeah, I know, uh, speaking just personally, my father-in-law is very happy because he loves to watch a bike race during his uh, after-lunch siesta in Spain. And he likes to lay on the couch and watch the race and watch the countryside and, you know, doze off. But uh, oh, it was great to see racing again. I agree with James. It was just uh, pretty balls-to-the-wall racing. Uh, good to see... The teams, you know, right now, every every race counts. I think we've already seen that over the last couple of years. COVID amplified that. And I think this year, it'll be even more so that every race, every team goes to, they want to get something out of it, even if it's these so-called smaller races. And just the fact that there aren't that many on the calendar anymore. We saw the Spanish calendar got gutted. We have the Clásica del Maria next weekend, but that's basically it in Spain this early season. Uh, so, ah, it's great. I mean... I like watching bike racing, and that's why we all have these these jobs. You know, we, we get paid to do this, so uh, thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, did you guys watch that that replay of Ghana with his breakaway win where he's, you know, in this, like, six-dude breakaway, and then he gets off the front, puts his head down, starts motoring away, and the other guys are going as hard as they can to try and bring him back. And it's just like, nope, five versus one, and one is going to win every time. That To me, that was sort of the – that was the, like, real impressive head-turning – uh, right there was Ghana just showing everybody how strong his legs are. Yeah, they, they t- they're already calling him uh, Top Ghana in the Italian media, as in Top Gun. And he, <laughs> oh, he, he's really a, uh, a budding superstar there in Italy. I mean, they need they need someone. You know, he's he, only 24 he, years old. Yeah, yeah. He's coming yeah. up. I mean, he's, he's going to the Olympics. He'll be a favorite for the time trial. He's also doing the team pursuit. He's kind of like Taylor Finney in many ways. You know, he, was a, he, he holds the world championship right now in the individual pursuit. And it's too bad that it's not an Olympic sport because he would just rule that. He would rule the boards on the IP. Uh, he's going with an Italian team. Not a great Italian team for the team pursuit, but they're in there with a shot maybe for a bronze. They got bronze in Berlin last February. So, But he'll be a, he'll be a huge star if he gets gold in the time trial in, uh, in Tokyo. And you know he has kind of that profile like Conchalata. You know, a time trial rider who has the panache to race and attack. It could be a great classic. Absolutely. For years. Oh, and you know... We- uh, I, you know, I put, I put up a few galleries on Instagram and got some great comments. One guy was like, why is this guy not riding, you know, the Cobble Classics? And that's a really good question. I don't, I, I mean, the guy would be a monster on the Cobbles, one would think. And I wonder if he has any ambition after the Olympics to transition here. Well, he's already actually raced Robay twice. Um, you know, he's, he's already raced Robay in Flanders. So it's not like he hasn't done him yet. It's just this year going into, uh, the Olympics of Tokyo, going to the Giro. They don't want to overload him or you know risk a crash or something like that. But he, he he'll, he'll be at Robay in 2022, and I, I I agree. I think he'll be a massive. Well, I, or I guess the better question would be why hasn't that that become more of a focus for him? Maybe 
maybe maybe i don't i, I to be honest i i don't didn't follow his placings at those races but uh, maybe he was, maybe didn't, maybe he's not that good on it, or maybe it just wasn't a focus. But I'd be really curious to see if he gives the same amount of attention to time traveling as he does to the cobbles. What, what, what could happen? Yeah, I mean, it's been upwards of twenty years since we had an Italian winner on the cobbles in the the days of Ballerini and Andrea Taffi, and you know, uh, the Italians who, you know, they do have a storied history at Roubaix and Flanders, but, you know, an entire, there's like two generations now of racers that have gone without having an Italian stars really, you know, just winning the races. There have been some guys mixing it up. So I think it would be cool to see Ghana be the guy to end the, uh, end the losing streak at Roubaix myself. Hey, before we get to this, like, super tuck and all the UCI bands and the hairball stuff around that, I, I want to get back to the, um, the French races because, like Andy said, these Spanish races that we're accustomed to having in the early season are off. Spanish and Portuguese races. UAE Tour is going, but some of the other Middle East ones are off. Uh, Tour Down Under didn't happen. No, no Tour Colombia 2.1. So that's putting all this focus on these early season French races, which James is going to. Um, the races in question, we, we just had Etoile de Bessage. Now we have the Tour de la Provence. We have the Tour des Alpes Maritimes et Duvar. Royal Bernard Drum Classic and Fon Ardèche Classic. Um, James, what can you let, let like let's take these races one at a time and break down for the listeners what they can expect at these events, starting with Provence into uh, Et Duvar and then Bernard and Fon Ardèche. Like, how would you describe these races to the the cycling fan and what they should be looking for at these races? Well, um, I think you're going to see a lot of great racing, like we just saw this weekend. I mean, if Etoile de Bessege was this great, I think Tour de Provence has. Has, has been one of the most up-and-coming races in recent years. It's only, what, six years old, I think. And it's one of my absolute favorite races because why? It's the Tour of La Provence, and they just go through French Provence you know, with the beautiful winter light. And I've, I've been there for the last three, four years and always love it. They bring in a good field, and this year's field is going to be stellar. Um, I mean, uh, the, the race organizer had to turn away World Tour teams. I mean, he could have had a total World Tour race, but he just had to turn them away. He didn't have the money for them and, and or the status, really. Um, but, you know, they're going to be finishing uh, one stage up the Mont Ventoux. Uh, lots of – there's something for everywhere. There's going to be sprint stages. There's a lot of hilly kind of accidental stages. Accidental in the French word means, uh, yeah, hilly, uh, up and down. Uh, and a great field. I mean um, – Starting with the world champion Julian Alaphilippe, who uh, uh, they've been wanting to get for years, and he's gonna—he's coming. He went down. He's—he's he's already there. He's been there for in the area for a week. He's obviously clearly motivated. I don't think he can win with a climb up the Mont Ventoux uh, finish, but uh, I think he can certainly get a stage or or two and and really you know really uh, pop it. And I think he's really hungry to show off that jersey. Um, anyway, one of my actually just sentimentally one of my absolute favorite races. Then we go to the tour. Um, as you said, uh, what's what was always the Tour of Haute-Va, which is a, a tremendous race. Sometimes it got mixed up with the Haribo Classic and, and things like that. But it's a three-day race this year, and it's shifted. It used to be around, it used to be around Toulon and, and that area. Now it's really right around Nice. It's sort of like a you know the final weekend of Paris Nice in the back hills. This is going to be kind of like that. It's three days in the back hills of Nice, really. Um, so uh, a lot of the guys that were at Ardesh are going to be there. I think Van Avermaet and Gilbert are both going to be back there. Um, and you know, obviously all the guys like Gilbert who live in Monaco know these roads well and will uh, use it to their advantage. Um, so that I'm really looking forward to that. I haven't been I haven't been to the Haute Bar in, in 20 years. I think I've been only there once. 
uh, and really looking forward to going back to that one. And then the final race is another newcomer, or you know, it's been around for 20 years, but it's really grown in the last five, six years. Uh, and that is the Drome and Ardesh Classics, which I've been to for the last five or six years. No coincidence that it's grown since I've showed up, but I'm just saying it's it's a great race. Uh, very hilly, punchy races. Uh, you know, a group of 20 guys can finish on the line, maybe 30 uh, at on, uh, let's see, is it Drome or Ardesh? I always get these. At the Drome Classic, I think. Uh, no, Ardesh. And Drome almost always uh, finishes. How does it finish? It almost always finishes with a couple guys. Just a couple guys. Sometimes a solo over the last climb or a couple guys. But really hard early season racing and great racing. Yeah, and I, I, I'm really curious to um, see how the, um, you know, the fact that these guys that the big stars are headed to these French races this year, you know, these races that historically mark the early season and then have lost their luster in the last, you know, a couple decades because of the rise in global events and Middle East races and stuff. I'm curious to see if this year is like a singular bump for them or if it leads to a, a bit more traction in the World Tour Peloton. If in, you know, 2022, 2023, we see more World Tour guys go to these races and uh, you know, decide to stick closer to home. Do either of you guys have uh, that's a really good rich perspective really on good, that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, on paper, I think you know, a year from now, they're going to have more competition, and you're going to start seeing more and more of the guys go away. But at the same time, I think there is going to be some long-term residue uh, to to this uh, pandemic, and I think people, are, uh, certain riders and certain teams, are going to be a bit wary about going so far away so early in the season. Uh, you know, I was talking to chatting with Philippe Gilbert just last night and I said, you know, uh, I'm going to do some recon over on San Remo, uh, before Milan San Remo goes, and he just lives in Monaco. He's like, no, uh, I don't ride in Italy anymore. Um, you know, I just stay here in France and keep it close to home. And, and, you know, and I think that sort of mentality, just keep it close to home, uh, keep the travel, the risks of travel down as much as possible are going to permeate much beyond this springtime. So I think you're going to see, for last, I think in the next couple of years you're going to see those races, maybe not have quite quite the the crowds that they had this year in terms of the peloton, but I think you're going to see them uh, get you know get a definite boost for the, for a long term. Last one for you, James. I mean, what was your sense from talking to the riders at uh, the race this past weekend of how they feel about you know stuff like safety, sanitary measures, and the adjusted racing season in general? I mean, what uh, are the teams, the team directors? thinking about, you know, whether or not we're going to proceed as normal um, and how they feel about racing. You know, I, I guess I would just say um, action speaks louder than words. I and mean, when you saw how many big name riders are out there attacking day in and day out, making the race happen, uh, they were not taking this as training. They were very happy to be where they were at a bike race and very eager to test their legs, see how the, the winter had gone. And that is all I heard. I didn't hear anybody uh, yeah, I talked to the, the Indios director. He was a little worried about, you know, how, all right, so we got this one down. Are we going to be able to do Provence? Are we going to be able to do Ardèche? Uh, but I, I talked with these organizers because, um, uh, as you know, I'm, I go to these races and they said, uh, even if France is in total lockdown, uh, the French minister has pretty much said that the, the professional sports will have an exception and be able to go behind closed doors. So they're, they're, they're just happy to be racing and know they're going to have some great racing in this next month. Yeah, the wrinkle that I'm hearing from some people is that the assumption is that the calendar is going to unfold as planned, right? I mean, uh, La Partienne said that last week, the World Tour calendar hopefully won't be impacted. So 
you know, classics in April, Giro, Tour, Welta on their established dates. The fear is, is there's going to be a, uh, some uh, race cancellations between now and then. So the big fear is, you know, they want these races so at least the riders can get in some racing kilometers before they have to go to uh, race Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders. So if these French races can stay on the docket for the next several weeks, that'll be huge. But if those races get canceled, there's a lot of concern. That, you know, what do we do? And then suddenly we have to go race Strade Bianchi, our first race back. Yeah, we, we've done that before, though. We know what that, <laughs> that does. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm here in France. I'm, I'm, I got my ear to the... Uh you know, to the wall. And I'm pretty confident that the next uh, three weeks of racing will happen. And I think I'm pretty confident actually uh, all the way through Paris Nice. I was talking with the race director there. The ASO people were down at these races and I'm pretty darn confident. I mean, heck, you know, we're in a country that pulled off the Tour de France in the middle of the pandemic. If we can pull off the Tour de France, the mentality is that we can pull off these races. Uh, and I think the Tour de France did a lot to get the confidence of the French government to show that that the sport of cycling can can do this uh, in a reasonable level, so I'm I'm pretty confident about about the springtime here in, in France. Well, and for you know fans listening at home, this is all very very important because it speaks to the wider question of um, will the riders when they enter you know big races like the Spring Classics or the Grand Tours be starting from zero, or will they have enough racing in their legs to be at full speed? I mean, when we think back to the Tour de France last year and the fact that these guys had like you know two or three races in their legs before the Tour de France. I mean, that did lead to some unpredictable action and, you know, guys like Egan Bernal not being on form and Garen Thomas and Chris Froome not even been selected for the team. So if you have a more regular lead up because these races are able to be on the calendar, I think we could have, um, I don't know, I think it's going to mean that everyone comes into something like the Tour de France or the classics firing um, on all cylinders. Um, James, thanks for your dispatch from those races that uh, everyone should go check out uh, James's galleries and stuff online. Um, guys, we got to talk about these rule changes. Okay, so this first rule, uh, the, on Thursday, I believe, the UCI sent us a, lo- a very, very long press release, as they often do. And if there's one thing that you can um, bet all the money in your bank account on when you get a long press release from the UCI, the actual news, the actual important stuff is not like mentioned in the first paragraph or the second paragraph, maybe not even the 10th paragraph. It's usually buried way at the bottom. And such was the case with this. What, uh, you know, the thrust of the, of the announcement was that the UCI is going to enact some um, safety changes for 2021, uh, most notably um, in, in 2022, you know, making the finish line safer. Uh, so these at these finish lines after the tour of Poland thing, like making sure that barriers are more secure, you know, more robust uh, rules for barriers so that we don't have people flying through the barriers and hitting concrete pillars, etc. cetera. Um, also included there was the uh, news that the UCI is going to ban the super tuck. That of course is the descending position where you uh, put your junk on your top tube and curl into your bike so that you uh, see more aerodynamic. And then, um, News filtered out later that the UCI is also going to ban this uh, aerodynamic attack position where, you know, you put your hands on the handlebars, your, your forearms on the handlebars as if you were in a time trial bike to get more aero. This is something we see again and again. In fact, Tim Wellens won the race in France this past weekend by assuming this position after he attacked. Um, Andrew, Andrew Hood, I'm hoping you can give us a little bit of context and reaction here. I mean, these rules come down. What type of reaction did you see from the riders and also people in the sport after this stuff was announced? Yeah, we saw quite a, a frenetic reaction online. You know, people were not shy to take to Twitter and let their opinions be known. 
a lot of the riders and pros were just incredulous, really. It's like, well, gee, you know, this, there's never been a documented case of someone crashing uh, in the super tuck position, at least as far as we know. We haven't been able to, to find a, a case really, you know, uh, any video of someone crashing in that position. Um, so, yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of kind of like, you know, it was a, it was a chance for the haters to, to, to let loose on UCI as well. You know, um, oh, well, you, you know, you worry about suck height and you worry about the super tuck. You know, what, what about this? You know, blah, blah, blah. So we saw a lot of that, a lot of that kind of uh, angry reaction against the UCI. But I think a lot of this is kind of, uh, you know, being a little bit preemptive, perhaps, with the UCIs. I think at the pro elite pro level, yeah, the pros can do this. But I think they're more worried about at the U23 levels, the juniors, the weekend warriors trying to emulate their, you know, try to emulate Chris, uh, Chris Froome and his super tuck and augering into a tree somewhere. I think that, I think this is where a lot of this is coming from. But, you know, I guess they could have made an exception. You know, the pros can do this, but, you know, the U23 ranks and below, it's banned. So a lot of people are really upset. I mean, looking at those positions, you know, the super tuck, if you look at the two positions, you know, the elbows on, on the elbows on the handlebars is a much more unstable position than the super tuck because at least your hands are on the handlebars in the super tuck. Um, so, you know, there's some argument that they are unstable, that the, they could produce a, a dramatic crash. And what would the reaction be? Let's be honest. You know, on social media, if someone did crash, ran into a tree, ran off the side of a hairpin, and something bad happened to them, you know, imagine the reaction on Twitter. Whoa, why did not you do bad this before? Blah. So, you know, there's no there's no easy answer to this. I think they're trying to thread the needle between being proactive, being safe. But there has been some blowback from the pros, and they're saying they were not consulted. So, well, yeah, no easy answer. And let's not forget, I mean, they've had like 20 years or more to uh to ban this i mean this that whole position started if you remember the old chinelli what were they called the spinachi thing uh little handlebars i thought they were great i i i had a pair on my old eddie merrick's for a long time and i just love that and you side banned that in the mid 90s and people but you know people have gotten used to that and and from that day on pros have been riding in this position um, and a lot of people do. I ride in that position. I mean, not like when I'm blowing through some lights in Paris, but when I'm over at the park or on a long straightaway, yeah. Uh, if I'm, uh, going hard, I'll, I'll, I'll ride that. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think a lot of guys are going to have a hard time not doing it just because it's, it's, it's so habit at this point in our, in our cycling and we all do it. Yeah, I'm with you there, James. I mean, especially when I had bikes that had um, cables, like uh, shift cables and brake cables coming out, like the Shimano thing. It was so easy to just like grab onto those cables and then wrist your forearms and have some stability on that end. Uh, it was funny because when I was building some of those sites or some of those posts in the back end, I, I went into our uh, photo gallery with uh, Giddy Images to search for um, images. And, you know, the Super Tuck one was a little hard to find. Like I had to search for a couple different terms and then found a few pictures of people doing the Super Tuck. But the forearms on the handlebars, like you said, James, like all I had to search was breakaway. And it was like every single breakaway has a picture of a guy doing that position, like at the race in France this past weekend, at the Welta, at the Tour de France. Every single race has someone assuming that position. It's like second nature for these guys because it is an aerodynamic advantage. I think there's been a lot of – there's been some debate about whether the Super Tuck really gives you that big of an aerodynamic advantage. And I know some researchers, I believe in Belgium or somewhere, did some studies to say, eh – there's probably it's probably no different than like some of the other tuck positions out there, but the TT position one is one where you're like, yeah, you know, no no brainer. I mean, every time we see a guy go off the front, 
I feel like they're trying to do something to gain an aerodynamic advantage. Even Ghana this past weekend, you know, he had his hands nominally touching the uh, shifters and the, and the handlebars, but like he was bent over and had his forearms resting on top of the handlebars as well. So I don't know that to me, that's the one that's going to take more of a culture shift than the super tech. I think the guys will find other ways to tuck and get arrow and they'll be able to like get around the super tuck thing. But the puppy paws on the handlebars that to me, that's like, that's part of cycling. And I'm with you hoodie. I'm like, who was, who was asking for this? Riders were not asking for this. The riders were asking for safer barriers at the finish line. The teams were asking. Everyone was asking for that. We can all agree that, you know, the images of Fabio Jakobsen ex- hitting barriers and the barriers exploding was like, a, okay, you know, we get, we need we need safer infrastructure here. But I guess I just – I don't know where the, the request or the calls for change were on this one. But maybe, the Andy, like you said, this is sort of a preemptive thing trying to – trying to get ahead of it i just don't know how are they going to enforce this like it seems like they're going to have warnings right obviously at the pro level it's easy to enforce you give somebody a fine you yeah. know it's like you don't wear your helmet uh it's easy, as long as they, as soon as they see it happening and there are you know there's anybody who's at the head of the pack driving the pace uh you know they got a commissaire on them so you know if they go into that tuck it's going to be you know but how, what are you going to do? You're going to disqualify him? If you're going to take the victory away from Wellens, you're going to dock him 13 seconds. Uh, you're going to give him a fine. Uh, are guys just going to eat the fine? Uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of a Pandora's box, really. And and it just seems like a lot of paperwork for, I don't know. I mean, I think, Andy, you kind of hit it on the head. Um, you know, it's like, uh, well, are we trying to protect ourselves from a legal case if something bad does happen? And, but, you know, at the same time, they're about 20 years late on this. Andrew Hood, what do you think the appropriate fine should be? Like the, the comp, is it like a nice dinner? Is it like an automobile, the price of a car? Like where should the fine be for this one? I think it should be like in biathlon, you know, when you miss the target, do like a, a penalty lap, you know? I like that. So, like when, so when you you come down the hill on the tuck, it's like, no, your race isn't over. You got to do like a 20K penalty lap and then yeah. that'll, that'll get rid of that, that practice pretty fast. <laughs> well it's definitely a story we're going to continue to follow uh the very strange um whims of the uci well andrew hood and james start you have been uh wonderful analysts here on the uh Villainous podcast we're going to get to our guest though guest of honor lucinda brand who's going to take us inside her cyclocross world championship victory so it's been a few days since the world's now one what moment from the race, or is there a particular memory from the racing that stands out the most to you? No, it, just in general, it was like, um, well, I, I will never forget that the first moment getting out of the sand was already like, ooh, that's a big gap, <laughs> which I was behind uh, Denise. Uh, yeah, and every time the bridge, especially, was yeah something really tough, actually. <laughs> Yeah, it was a, it was quite a spectacular um quite a spectacular course. Did you uh did you feel like you had to do any specific preparations for it in uh, in advance? Did you like train in the sun? Uh, well, we we did kind of. So, of course, I did some intervals just um climbing fast and hard on steep part um on a little hill and also we tried to find a place where we could ride uh, quickly down and then enter a sand section but um 
that that is something you never can really simulate from what that crazy high bridge was <laughs> because you basically you you just never gonna find a situation like that somewhere um so yeah of course you train to uh, right as fast uh, as good as you can uh, going to a stand but um yeah it's never the same as you find there and i did a reckon on thursday it was already so different compared from the day we were racing the final lap was incredible to watch and um toward the end we saw you and um, anna marie kind of battling for the lead and there was the moment where you two tangled and she went down um what do you remember about that moment from the race? Um, I remember that a uh, little before she came really strong past me. Um, and I knew from the laps before that we took different lines. Um, so, of course, I could see where she would start. And I saw on where she was going to that she would take the same lines as before. Um, so I decided to take my own lines again, the same as the lap before, uh, which I knew it was going to mean that we were crossing on some points, but I was um, hoping that um, that I would be on time. And I think I was also on time on the right points. There was space enough. But um, yeah, she also didn't really expect me to be on that place, I guess. And um, yeah, I, I really, how you say, small touch or just like we just touch each other like really not like a, like a push or something, but really like how it happens, like, I don't know, so many times. And um, yeah, or before or just on that moment, uh, she lost a bit of traction and she crashed. And yeah, um, straight on the moment that that happened, I was like, ah, you know, you don't want uh, a situation like that. I mean, of course, it's in my advantage, but um, you also, um, yeah, want, yeah, there was also a great battle uh, going on so um, yeah of course that was a bit what's going on my mind on that moment but then straight after you need to focus on yourself and just make sure you come on the line before the worlds you had a bit of a different build-up because of covid and you had um, Ill- injuries and illnesses and things and um, you've spoken before about how you kind of went into the cross season fresher like you you started a bit fresher what impact do you think that your shortened well the shortened road season had on your whole cyclocross winter um for sure i could do a lot more races already of course and um yeah in the beginning it took some a moment to really um yeah get into it really good but i always was already fighting for a podium so that was of course already really good but i i felt on my you know my fitness the way how i raced that it could be better than uh, i was doing on that moment but then quickly changed already and um yeah then i came in a great flow with winning a lot of races in the end um and and also in all the classifications i was doing super well so um yeah of course i can't say different than there was a really um yeah quick and strong benefit from um having the focus to cyclocross on that moment. I mean, after such a phenomenal season, do you think that it will impact your split of focus on the road and cyclocross at all? Will it kind of change any ambitions on either discipline? No, not not really yet. I think um, 
now we're just gonna have like or not maybe a normal season but at least a bit more normal than last year at least we just have a spring on the road and stuff like that um and there are several goals still i i can go for in, on the road or i want to go for and um so so far, I still just want to go back uh, to the system I did before, and that's uh, racing on the road and racing cross. But of course, um, haven't seen how great uh, it goes on the cyclocross. Um, I will definitely look into if I again do a long uh, winter uh, with uh, the same amount of races I did now, and um, how you can balance that a bit. Road. I mean, I can't do. Uh, 20, 25 races on the road and on the track of Ross, for example. That's, you know, like, yeah. yeah, you need to find a bit of balance there, of course. Going into the world, I mean, you'd won the World Cup just the week before and you'd been winning sort of all season. Um, did you did you feel like after the last few years at the Worlds where you came so close, but, you know, just, just got edged out, did you feel like maybe this was going to be your year? Um, well, of course, uh, I had a great season, so I had all the reason to be very confident. Um, but uh, I still wasn't so confident. Uh, the last weekend before, I, I had, didn't win. Others no. were definitely better. Um, and... Um, I had more moments, like, especially two years ago, I had a moment that, uh, yeah, we thought like, oh, the chance you're winning is very big and stuff like that. So I learned also from that, that um, uh, every single race is a new start and it doesn't matter how much races you have won before. It's all about that moment, how good you are and uh, that you have nothing like trouble with your bike or a crash or whatever, doing stupid things or I don't know, call it what can happen in cyclocross. So um, yes, of course, it gave me confidence to have such a great season. And I also tried to realize that um, I had already a lot of great victories, with, which others didn't have. So, um, yes, I really wanted to become the world champion. Um, but if it didn't happen, I wouldn't have a shit season. And, um, of course, probably when I didn't win, I wouldn't say that straight away after the race, because then I still was really disappointed. But... Um, Somehow, I also tried to convince myself that the pressure was not that high of uh, that you need to win the race. And of course, I really wanted to win the race because I have been already so close. And you also know that uh, there are a lot of young, talented riders coming up. So you never know how next season will be again, how strong other riders will be, how good do you, uh, how good can you be yourself? So. Um, when the chance is there, you really need to try to take it. But I always have been trying to not see it that um, straight, you know, like because they put only a lot of pressure on your own shoulders, which can end up in uh, that you're, yeah, blocked or something. Did that feeling of not sort of pressurizing yourself too much kind of, did it impact the final lap when you were still like neck and neck with Denise and Anna-Marie? No, on that moment, I was just really like, um, yeah, when we came towards the final, I was really like, okay, this time I'm going to make it. It's not going to happen again. And um, almost a bit like whatever happens, it feels a bit, but no, I was really hungry to, to take the race my way, uh, that it came my way instead of that in, in the last moment it slipped away. 
So uh, no, and I always also didn't was really nervous or something. And I hear like my coach was really in the first moment like, why is she changing bike? Because one half lap before I changed my bike, and, oh, she was super nervous about it, and I was not thinking about uh, a negative way of, uh, of, of outcome from the chain, bike change. So yeah, I was I think just really good in a good focus. I think just wanted to move on to sort of looking forward at the road uh, a bit now if that's okay so um well first thing sort of a bit of both is uh, i was wondering i mean other than you and say mariana voss there's not many riders that do a mixed program of cyclocross and road whereas it seems like in the male peloton there's there's perhaps more people are kind of taking it up do you, do you is there any obstacles uh, or yeah. differences there are more riders who are doing a combination. Also, Christine Mayeris does it already for many years, but she's also not racing a lot of cyclocross and um, in a road racing. She's maybe for the public not so visible, but for the riders she is because she's a great helper of her team always, very important rider. And um, you also see that... Um, I said a couple of years ago already when I, I started to race more cyclocross, like that I wasn't, I didn't got why the cyclocross riders were not racing more on the road because I was, um, yeah, I really believe that they missed a little bit of their engine, you know, yeah. like the long time engine and that they could really train it and road racing. But um, also the uh, team from Salin, uh, the, the road host mm. uh, guys, they made a road team. So those girls are also racing together on the road. Um, the Annemarie Worst, Selin, uh, Yara Kastelein, uh, Sannekant, all those riders, they are one team on the road. And of course, last year they didn't have that much races because of the COVID, but I expect they will do more races again this year as well. Um, so they also uh, see how important it is to do racing, but I don't know if they really gonna, um, if they have the goal to race the way Marianne or me does it on the road, you know, but I, I do believe they have potential. At least a few riders are having potential to be, become also really good road racers. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, do you feel like, uh, the guys like Van der Poel and Van Aert sort of, are they sort of inspiring to show that you can be the best at both? Uh, both road and yeah definitely because I remember when I um, became um, when I just came from juniors over to 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 the, the big telephone yeah. <laughs> and I was also doing cyclocross a bit for fun and they really pushed me to to not do it more than just for training and having fun so I always did a few races but really a few like maybe four whatever just to do something in the winter and the reason simply was just because they always said it's impossible you can do that uh, it's, it's not healthy to do it that way or you know like um, uh, if you do that then you can't be good at the roads because you did too much in the winter or you know like those kind of things and I think Mar yeah they also said it a bit because Marianne always did it already and they said always maybe they didn't say it with that words but it always felt like that for yeah she's a special girl she she's um, she's so talented and so strong she can do more you know like yeah. Uh, it's not normal that it's possible that way. It was more a bit like, 
So, and I think you see more and more other riders also believing now, like, oh yeah, you can do the combination. Of course, you need to use your head in your program. How are you going to do it? But it is possible and it really helps each other. So your endurance helps on the cross and your explosive part and your technique helps in the road. And um, yeah, you see more and more guys also making that combination. And I think uh, Wout and Mathieu are great examples for uh, a positive view on both sports. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. So, um, a bit more on the on specifically on the road. Uh, I I think it was in your press conference. You said you were like really focusing in on uh, Roubaix and hopefully uh, the Olympics. I mean, does this cross season sort of give you confidence to try and sort of take take lead at races like that? Of course, everything comes together with how your form is. And um, yes, we have a lot of strong riders uh, who have uh, capabilities for, for the for Roubaix race. Um, but I think when I'm in a good form, I am um, one of the leaders of this race. Um, for sure, we will not start with just one leader. I think it's also... As a, a race you can't race really for one person it's, it's a crazy race you see that the man's always happening stuff you don't expect and um, I think we're really going to benefit that we have such a strong team and that we have more people who are able to ride strong on a course like that yeah and um, what's your feelings in general about Roubaix is it a, a race you're quite excited for um, or yeah, it's a nervous excitement because I'm also kind of afraid, you know. I don't know if you know what I mean, but sometimes you have those things in life that you really want to do, but also why I want to do it. Shit, it's so, it must be, I mean, we did a reckon and it was already the morning. It was already so hard. So imagine racing on it, you know, like then, then it must be so hard. And then I'm also like, if I really think about it, like why I, I'm so looking forward, you know, so it's always also a bit of, uh, yeah, um, scare, scaredness in there. You said also uh, at the weekend that you're hoping for Olympic selection. Um, how does it feel to be both on a Trek team, which has got, you know, really strong selection of girls, and then to be Dutch, where there's another, like, really strong selection of girls um, it's definitely not always easy. I mean, sometimes you think like, oh, maybe it's easy to be in a little smaller team and you're sure about your place and you just can say, uh, this is a race I want and this is a race I want and and here I am, all right, I will do it for the rest. And, you know, but um, that's not, not, in the end, it doesn't suit me. I always have been surrounded by people who are or stronger or at least as strong as I am. Uh, and that makes me stronger. And it, I believe that it, it always makes me stronger to have strong people around me because I need to keep fighting. Not only fighting in the race, but also fighting for your position. I mean, the people around, they know what they can uh, ask you and what they, if they take you to the race, they know they can rely on you. But still, you always, there's always something you need to show that it's, not for nothing. And um, I always want to be better also myself. So I'm very critical. And with strong riders around you, they are also very critical. So you also, I believe for me, at least, it works to become better out of that. And um, 
um, yes, it's not always easy, and especially not in a federation. Uh, yes, then sometimes you think like, oh, maybe I need to change nationality, <laughs> then you have more chance, or, you know, like, yeah, Olympics, it, it's so hard in the Netherlands to make a, something like, sometimes it's already hard to be selected for worlds, so, yeah. <laughs> and we have much more places, so, yeah, it's not easy always, but it, I also believe that that made me the rider I am. So the peloton's going to look a little different next year. So, you know, Anamiek moved to uh, Movistar and Mariana's gone to Jumbo Visma and, and you've got Chloe Digert coming in as well uh, to Canyon Shram. Do you feel like the pe- women's peloton will kind of feel a little... There'll be a different power kind of balance, like it'll be a different kind of peloton next year? Yeah, uh, I think so. Yes, yeah, we have uh, some new teams, um, and some new uh, combinations um, that for sure always makes uh, makes the racing different as well. Of course, there's always a bit um, feeling the first races, what's really going to happen, which way is the team going, are they going to race really aggressive gonna, or going to lay back and, you know, like what's their tactic? It's always, uh, yeah, uh, a big surprise or a big surprise, especially with the new teams and new riders in. So, but um, yeah, I think there there is a big chance that um, the balance will be different in the peloton. That uh, some races will go different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And um, this is my last one. Uh, so you may have seen in the news. I don't know how closely you kind of follow cycling news when you're probably trying to rest a little bit, but. Um, so AG2R men's team are talking about setting up a women's team soon and Kofidis men's team are talking about setting up a women's team and you've got Jumbo Visma who obviously have started with Mariana and you, you're on track obviously which is a dual programme. Do you feel like there's mutual advantages to the men's team and the women's team by having the kind of joint structure so by having the men's and women's team, I think it's very, yeah, I think it's really, really important and really good change. Um, our sport needs to to prof- uh, be more professional, and it's not always easy. It comes a lot of money around, but when it is, so you see, also we're getting more and more races which are combined with the men's race, uh, which gives us more publicity and. Um, I think those teams are seeing the same thing and uh, the level is growing, but it will be growing more when we get more professional. Um, the structure, which is already in the men's team, um, of course, it costs a little bit more money and you need more people around, but the structure is already there. And then adding a women's team is like actually a small step, but it's really huge for women's cycling and very important. And I think more and more teams starting to see that. And they see, I think, also the way we race is very positive and very interesting for uh, sponsors. And um, I'm very glad to hear that more and more teams are uh, seeing the benefit of it and wanting, uh, really willing to add a women's team. And I'm glad I have been already in several teams which did that. And um, yeah, it's good that more teams starting to follow now. Yeah. And um, obviously, I heard this week or last week that you guys, the managers, are matching your salary with the men's team. Does it feel? What's your? 
sorry, this isn't my last one. What's your what's your thoughts about being on such a kind of progressive, forward thinking team? It, it's very great. Um, track uh, is always um, yeah really uh, forward with trying to get uh, uh, more eagle uh, world in in this kind of things. Um, they also from the moment they started our team, they uh, had uh, women's DS. And it's also not in every team that we have women uh, inside uh, the car, let's say like that. So um, it's not, I mean, it's not that you need to have it. I mean, but it's really good that they have an eye for it. That, that That's also a possibility. And um, I think, yeah, they, do, they are doing a great job. Uh, of course, you need to be able financial to do it. But uh, this is the way home cycling need to go. And um, the, the TCA is really pushing for that to get the whole bunch grown. And um, I'm glad that our team takes it so serious that they even or they pass a few steps and, and uh, go straight away to the minimum of the men's salary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Lucinda. That's that's all my questions. Uh, 